Good morning, family. How many of you are thankful for Jesus? The Bible says in Colossians 2.10 that in Him we are complete. He is the one that satisfies the longing, the emptiness within. Without Him, there is something missing in our lives. And I know that from personal experience, but I'm so grateful that Jesus has satisfied my soul. He has quenched the thirst of my heart. And if you've not yet come to that experience, you're in the right place. As we study God's Word this morning, let's allow Jesus to be our all in all. Amen. We've had such a wonderful time together this past week. We've been meeting almost every night. Surely the presence of the Lord has been in this place. And I'm just so grateful for what He has done. I'm thankful that I had the privilege, the honor of being a part of it. I want to thank you folks for having me. Uh, this is my last day with you. We leave early tomorrow morning. I'll go back home to Hawaii and see my bride and, and uh, be in the warmer weather. Uh, but we're going to miss you folks. We invite you to come visit us anytime. And uh, we'll have, we'll have some, some more fellowship. But by God's grace, if we don't see each other again in this world, we'll meet in the kingdom. How about that? The true heavenly paradise. This morning we have a very relevant message, but before we get into that, I want to remind you that this evening we have the final presentation entitled, Living to Die and Dying to Live. I'll be sharing my personal testimony, how the Lord has rescued me from an empty life of drugs and partying and, and, uh, and how He's restored broken relationships. And so that's 6.45 this evening, how to start life over again. We encourage you to be here and bring someone, especially some young people, some young adults, so that they can be inspired to know that God is real and He's still working in the lives of young people in these last days. And so that's this evening, but this morning our message is Revelation Star Wars. And we're going to find the answer to the question, why does a loving God allow sin and suffering? Now at the end of the presentation, we're going to have a special time of prayer, lifting up requests to the Lord Jesus. If you have health issues, you can bring those to Jesus. Problems with your finances, maybe you're unemployed looking for a job, maybe you're struggling with depression, maybe you've lost a loved one and your heart is broken, maybe you have issues in your marriage, maybe you're a young person trying to find out the purpose of what your purpose in life is. Whatever the request, big or small, our sovereign God sees them all. And at the end of the message, we'll have a special time where we're going to come together and lift those burdens to Jesus. So I want you to be thinking about that as you listen to the message. Please bow your heads. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you so much for gathering us together as your children in your house on this, your holy day. And Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would not only fill this room, but that you'd fill our hearts. That you'd give to us a fresh revelation of Jesus. Lord, we pray that this would not be just another church service. Something that we casually, routinely do once a week. But this morning, Lord, give us an encounter with the living Christ. And I pray that we would never be the same again. Please, Lord, we ask that heaven will come down. And that glory will fill our soul. We pray that you'll lift us up. That we might sit with Christ in heavenly places. Even as we sit here in these pews today. 
We pray that burdens will be lifted and that sorrows would be soothed, that distractions would be removed, and that Jesus will be real to each person. So bless us now as we wait upon thee. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Revelation Star Wars. Why does a loving God allow sin and suffering? Ladies and gentlemen, it's obvious and no surprise that we are living in a world that's plagued with pain. A land that is saturated with sorrow. And unfortunately, the reality is that suffering is the lot of most people that live on planet Earth. I'll never forget when I visited India a few years ago. We held some meetings in that country and it it broke my heart to see the poverty that was so dramatic and extensive. And it really got to me when I saw these mothers, and I took this picture of this one mother, who were forced to use their little babies, their infants, as bait to catch the sympathy of bypassers as they were begging for money. And you can see the look on this mother's face. She had no fingers and no toes. She was sitting on the side of the road suffering greatly. And you see the desperation in her eyes, a reflection of the suffering of her life. My friends, we live in a world where hundreds and thousands of people are dying from starvation. They don't have enough food to eat. We live in a world where most people, many people don't have a place to call home. And many of the homes that we do have are being torn apart by divorce and dysfunction and conflict. And as a result, children grow up insecure, thinking that no one cares about them. And little girls without a father figure many times becomes the prey of sexual predators. Boys not finding acceptance at home are looking for acceptance by joining gangs. And the cycle of dysfunction repeats over and over and over and just gets worse and worse and worse, causing people to turn to drugs to escape the realities of life making people slaves to substances. My friends, did you know that our world consumes 100 billion aspirin tablets every single year because life on planet Earth brings so much headache and heartache? We live in a world where reading the newspaper, watching the news is a disturbing experience. We read about planes filled with people falling from the sky. We read about mass shooters, mass murderers, and, and, and these terrible things in the schools, but even in churches. And as we think about all the chaos in the world, the economic instability with hunger and homelessness and unemployment, international conflict with wars and revolutions and international unrest, and we read about moral decay rape and abuse and child molestation and human trafficking, as we think about all these terrible things, the suffering that it brings both to the guilty and the innocent, the question comes from the hearts of humanity, why God, if you are so good, is this world so bad? Why God, if you are so loving and so powerful, why do you not put an end to all the tragedies? People are demanding answers. As preachers are preaching about a God of power and a God of goodness, people can't comprehend how evil can exist in the face of an all-powerful and an all-good God. Many are asking, why does God not prevent the pain? Maybe you've asked that question. 
God, why did you allow me to lose my child? Why did you allow my spouse to get diagnosed with cancer? Why did you permit that terrible accident from taking place? God, where were you in that dark time? Why did God not stop that little baby from falling into the swimming pool and drowning? What about those girls that were held, as, held captive as sexual slaves in Cleveland for over a decade? What about the plane that fell from the sky and the mass shooting in New Zealand and all of these terrible things? Where is God in the face of all of this suffering? Well, friends, the Bible provides a compelling answer, a beautiful answer. You know, most, many people are, are atheists. They are steeped in skepticism because they have not heard the answer to this question. They can't comprehend how an all-powerful and all-good God exists in the face of evil. Many people are repeating what the Greek philosopher Epicurus said years ago. And here's what he said, and I quote, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he is not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh this evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? And that's a good question, friends. This is one of the foundational arguments for atheism. Basically, their argument goes like this. Either God is all, all good but not all powerful. So he wants to put an end to evil, but he can't because he doesn't have enough power. Or God is all-powerful, but he's not all-good. He can put an end to it, but he doesn't want to because perhaps he likes the evil. Or he is neither powerful and neither good, which makes him imaginary. And who in their right mind would want to worship and serve a powerless or an evil or an imaginary God. I sure wouldn't. But many individuals are too close-minded to realize that there's more than just those three options. The Bible provides that answer, and perhaps you already know the answer to this question, and you don't have an issue with it. But I can say with a great degree of certainty that you know someone that does not know the answer to this question. And so please listen carefully and write down the scriptures, not only for your own sake, but for the sake of the person that God wants to use you to share this beautiful truth with, perhaps even this week. And so, what does the Bible teach concerning this? Well, notice what it says in the book of Psalm, Psalm 107, verse 17. It gives us one of the reasons why suffering and affliction exists in the face of an all-powerful and an all-good God. The Bible says, fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities are what? Are you with me this morning? Bible tells us that because of our own foolish choices and iniquities, we suffer affliction. My friends, we can take responsibility for lots of the suffering we see in our world and in our lives. You see, we live in a world of cause and effect. If you play with fire, you're going to end up getting burned. There are repercussions to every decision that we make, both 
good decisions and bad decisions. And the Bible tells us here that because of our foolish choices, many times we bring the affliction upon ourselves. Thus, we must claim responsibility. But most of us want to blame God for that. It's like the person who is dying from lung cancer. And on the hospital bed, they're suffering so greatly and they're blaming God for that suffering when they were the ones that made the foolish choice to smoke their lungs dry with nicotine and yet they're blaming God for the decision that they had made. But some people protest and they say, but what about drug babies? Babies who are born into this world facing a life of suffering, not because they've chosen, they didn't choose, but they're facing a life of suffering because of the foolish choices of their drug-taking parents. What about them? Or even in that situation, we still can't blame God. Why? Because listen, friends, sin infects everything. Not only the guilty partakers, but also the innocent, innocent bystanders. Just like a rotten orange in a bag full of good oranges. Over time, that rottenness will spread and infect the good oranges too. Friends, we can't blame God for that. Insurance companies, they call natural disasters. They call them acts of God. My friends, we ought to be offended by that. These are not acts of God. They are acts of Satan. And we must put the blame where it really belongs. We know, friends, God does not cause suffering. Jesus made it clear that it is an enemy that has done this. The thief that has come to steal, to kill, and destroy. We know that God doesn't cause it. We know that the enemy is behind it. But the reality is, is God does allow it. So that's really what we want to find out the answer to this morning. He doesn't cause it, but he allows it. Why is that? Well, friends, listen. In order to accurately answer this question as to why God allows suffering, we first must understand the issues at stake in this great controversy between good and evil. You see, we're living in a time of war. And whenever there's war, not only are soldiers injured, but also innocent bystanders. You see, when we understand why this war has been taking place, then we can understand why evil has existed in the face of an all-powerful and an all-good God. And so, I want us to take a look at Revelation chapter 12 this morning. Please take your Bible and turn there with me. As we take a look at a description of the beginning of this war that took place in heaven. Revelation, what chapter are we going to? <clears throat> Revelation chapter 12. And notice what it says beginning with verse 7. Revelation 12 verse 7. The Bible says, and there was war where? In heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives how much of the world? The whole world. He was cast out into the, where? Earth, and his angels were cast out with him. So here we read in prophetic language how war began in the pure, holy atmosphere of heaven. The Bible says Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and his angels. My friends, the Bible tells us, that at the very beginning of the war, when, when, when the dragon, that is Lucifer, Satan, first rebelled against God, Bible says that they were kicked out of heaven. I'm so thankful that from the very beginning of the war, God has remained victorious. 
the same God that evicted Lucifer from his heavenly home can also evict Satan from our homes, from our hearts, from our marriages, and from our lives. Can you say amen? But the question is this, why was there war in heaven? And where did this dragon come from? Did God create a dragon? What's a dragon doing in heaven? My friends, God didn't create a dragon. We know that God created a beautiful angel by the name of Lucifer. And notice the position that he held in heaven. Ezekiel 28 verse 14, write it down. It describes the exalted position of Lucifer, that glorious angel, when God made him. It says, thou art the anointed cherub that covers. He is the what, everyone? Anointed cherub that does what? I want you to remember that. Lucifer was created and ordained by God, anointed by the Lord, to be the covering cherub. I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. And then it says in verse 12 that Lucifer was full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. God did not create a dragon or an ugly, terrible monster. He created a beautiful, glorious, bright angel and ordained him with a privileged position in heaven as the covering cherub. God gave to Lucifer wisdom, beauty, privilege, and power. But more than those things, God gave him not only perfect beauty, but perfect freedom. Perfect what? Why? Because God is love. And love is the very nature of God. It is the very nature of the kingdom of God, the government of God, the law of God. God only desires service that's motivated by love. Force in no way is a part of God's kingdom, God's character, and God's government. Everything God made was to be an expression of His infinite love. God is love, therefore He gives choice. But friends, what is the nature of love? What is the nature of love? The nature of love is such that it cannot be demanded. It can only be given freely from choice. Let's take, for example, someone comes to you and they put a gun to your head. And they say to you, give me your wallet. Now, if you cared about your life, what would you do? You'd give your wallet or your purse. You see, force can control behavior. But let's say that same person came to you, they put a gun to your head, and instead of saying, give me your wallet, they said, give me your love. Love me. Now, is it possible to love that person? I mean, sure, if you already have God's love in your heart. But you can't, you're not going to love that person because they're forcing you to love them. Why? Because love by its very nature can never be forced. It can only be given freely from choice. And so here's the nature of love, friends. Write it down. The nature of love is that love mandates freedom. Love requires freedom in order to exist. If there is no freedom, there's no such thing as love. Love requires freedom. However, when you give someone freedom, that produces a risk. Isn't that right? It's risky because that person can reject or abuse their freedom to turn against you and hurt you. Is it risky to give someone freedom? Well, let me ask you. Parents, if your teenager comes to you and says, Mom, Dad, can I have the keys to the car tonight? I just want to go on a, on a spin. If you give that youngster the freedom, that freedom, is that risky? Parents, yes or no? Oh, the insurance companies know it's risky. 
And when God gave to humanity and to the angels freedom, that was one of the most loving things God did, but it was also one of the most risky things that God did. But God took the risk, and he still gave us freedom. Why? Because love was worth the risk. Love was worth that relationship the potential of a relationship of love was worth taking the risk of being rejected by those whom he loved. Just like when a man loves a woman and decides, man, I want to be with her and only her for the rest of my life. And, you know, the brother is anxious. You know, he just wants to seal the deal and he musters up the courage and he says, you know, I, I, I just love her so much I can't imagine life without her. And so I'm going to propose. I'm going to ask for her hand in marriage. And he decides that he wants to do it in public. You ever seen those video clips on YouTube? These public proposals? And uh, we see the guy, he, he gets on one knee and, and he begins to ask. And when people see that, they start getting excited and everyone surrounds the, the couple and the cameras are, 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 are taken out and everyone's anticipating a happy ending. But all of a sudden, as the sister is standing there looking at, at the brother proposing, all of a sudden she tightens up and she starts to shake and her head goes back and forth and she runs away. Oh, don't you feel bad for that guy? <laughs> now, friends, before you propose, you ought to have a, a good idea that, that she feels the same way too. But, you know, it's never a guarantee, isn't that right? She could say no. That happens all the time. But why is that brother willing to propose? I mean, he's willing to just completely be heartbroken. But yet he's still willing to ask. Why? Because if she says yes, oh, that relationship is worth taking the risk of her saying no. It's kind of the same thing when God gave us freedom. You see, it was risky but God understood that love could only exist when there's freedom of choice. And so, without freedom, love is an impossibility. If there is no love, there's no relationship. No relationship, no true happiness. No happiness. My friends, God gave freedom because God is love. The happiness of all is dependent and contingent upon the free choice of all. If that makes sense, please say amen. And so what happened, friends? God created a beautiful angel by the name of Lucifer, giving that angel perfect freedom. And what did he do with that freedom? He used it to rebel against his creator. The Bible describes it in Ezekiel 28, verse 15. Write it down. It says, you were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created till what was found in you? Iniquity was found in you. He was perfect, friends. Holy, sinless angel. But the Bible says that iniquity was found in him. Friends, what is iniquity? It's the same thing as lawlessness. What does it mean? Lawlessness. So when the Bible says iniquity was found in him, it's because Lucifer began to go against God's law. Now, we know that God's law is a law of love. So lawlessness is simply the result of lovelessness. You see, if love is the fulfilling of the law, then the unfulfilling of the law is due to a lack of love. 
So we, feed, we see that Lucifer began to rebel against God's law of love in his heart. And when he resisted God and God's love, this created a vacuum in his heart that was then filled with self-love. My friends, what is the opposite of love? What is the opposite of love? What do you think? Most people will say hate, but friends, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite, the opposite of love is selfishness. Because the chief characteristic of love is selflessness. Jesus said, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. The chief characteristic of love is selflessness. Therefore, the opposite of love is selfishness. As Lucifer began to reject God's selfless love, he then was filled with love for himself. It created a vacuum that was filled with self-love. And this, my friends, this selfish spirit that rebelled against God's law of love is what caused him to fall from heaven. And we read this in Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 14. The Bible says in Isaiah 14, verse 12 through 14, it says, How art thou fallen from heaven? O Lucifer, son of the morning, how art thou cut down to the ground which didst weaken the nations? You see, God even asked the question. Even God was baffled how this perfect angel could fall. And so God is asking, how is it possible you, Lucifer, to fall? And then God answers the question by revealing what was taking place in the heart of Lucifer. For thou hast said in thine heart. In other words, he didn't verbalize it at first. He just thought it to himself. What did he say in his heart? He said, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the what sides? Sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. This is what caused him to fall from heaven. Lucifer was no longer content to do God's will. He now wanted to do I will, his own will. We like to say he had an eye problem. He was short-sighted. We call that myopia. As he took his eyes off of the Lord, he placed it upon himself, and he felt so powerful. He wanted to exalt himself. He wanted to sit in the sides of the north. He forgot that God was the source of his wisdom, his power, his beauty, and his blessings. And he started to attribute all those things to himself. And basically what he said is, I want to be like God, and I don't need God to be like God. I can do it myself. This, my friends, is the origin of self-righteousness. I will be like the Most High. The Most High is righteous. The Most High is pure and holy. I can be like the Most High, and I don't need the Most High to be like the Most High. I can do it myself. The origin of self-righteousness came from Lucifer himself. He wanted to be exalted above God. He wanted to sit in the place where only God sits. And so because of his selfishness and his pride, Lucifer turned himself into Satan. And that word Satan literally means adversary. He became the adversary of God. He coveted God's power, but not God's character of love. And really, friends, when he said, I want to sit on the mount of the congregation in the side of the north, and I want to be like the Most High, it's because he had a problem with God's throne. Because the Bible tells us that God's throne is in the sides of the north. So basically what he was saying was, I want to dethrone God, and I want to be God. Now, notice what the Bible says concerning God's throne. Write it down. 
Psalms, one, uh, Psalms 97 verse 2 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his what? The foundation of God's throne is righteousness and justice. But what is righteousness? Psalms 119 verse 172, it says all thy commandments are righteousness. So in having a problem with God's throne, Lucifer had a problem with God's righteousness and God's law. Because that law of righteousness is the foundation of God's throne. And friends, you remember when we talked briefly about the sanctuary? There is the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place that represents God's throne. It was a chest-like piece of furniture overlaid with gold. And there was a mercy seat, a solid slab of gold that covered the chest. It was called the mercy seat because on the mercy seat sat the Shekinah glory, the visible manifestation of the glory of God. This, my friends, represents God's throne. And just under God's throne is God's holy law, which shows that the foundation of God's throne is his righteous law of love. But friends, notice on either side of the Shekinah glory of God are these two angels. Guess what those angels were called? Covering cherubs. What was Lucifer's position in heaven? Do you remember? He was anointed to be the covering cherub. Lucifer was one of those two angels. He held a high, exalted position, one of the closest angels to God right there besides the Lord. And his responsibility as the covering cherub was to reflect the, 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 the glory of God to others. To uphold, to cover and uphold the holy law of God, which was the standard of God's throne. But we see that the very angel that was ordained to uphold God's holy law began to rebel against that same law in his heart. That's what caused him to fall from heaven, friends. And when he fell... He didn't fall alone because misery loves company. So the Bible says in Revelation 12 verse 4, And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. When Lucifer fell, he drew one-third of the stars of heaven. Now what do stars represent in the Bible? According to Revelation 1 verse 20, stars represent angels. They represent what? So this is Revelation Star Wars. A third of the angels joined him in rebellion and thus fell from heaven. One third of the angels. And by the way, that's good news because for every evil angel on the devil's side, we got two good angels on our side. Amen. Oh, we may look like the minority in this world, but if we're on God's team, we're on the winning team. We're on the side of the majority. We can't lose when Jesus we choose. Amen. So whenever you feel all alone, remember, you got two angels for every evil angel. Amen? But how was it possible for Lucifer to convince a third of the angels to join him in rebellion? What did he use to convince them? What does it say? He used his tail. Now, what does that mean? Does Lucifer have a, a literal tail? Is he some kind of red creature with horns and a goatee and a pitchfork? Is that what the devil looks like? <laughs> no, friends, that's, that's what he wants us to think he looks like. But Lucifer was a beautiful, glorious angel of brightness. You see, when the Bible says he used his tail, it's symbolic. It represents something. Well, what does it mean? We don't have to guess because the Bible interprets itself. 
It says in Isaiah 9 verse 15, the ancient and honorable, he is the head, and the prophet that teaches what? Lies, he is the what? So what does the tail represent? It represents lies. You see, the angels in heaven join Lucifer in rebellion, not because they wanted to be evil, not because they hated God, but rather it's because they believed the lie of Lucifer. Lucifer deceived them into thinking that rebelling against God wasn't anything wrong. He began to tell tales in heaven about God, spreading lies about God to the other angels. He began to plant seeds of doubt in their mind. You see, his discontentment was eventually, was eventually verbalized, but under a pretense of having good in mind for the other angels. My friends, this is the origin of gossip. Gossip began in the very presence of God, and tragically, gossip is still happening in the presence of God in the churches of the world today. But friends, next time you're tempted to gossip and talk mean about somebody else and judge someone's motives, remember whose example you're following. You're following the example of the devil himself. He began to spread lies about God, planting seeds of doubt. And if he had a problem with God's law, then the nature of his lies had to have been against God's law. Maybe he said to the angels, why does God require us to obey his law? Why does God require us to serve him? I mean, we're powerful angels. We are holy. So why does God require us to obey? And friends, the other angels never looked upon obedience in that light before. Lucifer was painting obedience in a different color. Because the angels loved to obey God. They didn't look upon it as a requirement. But it was something that was their highest delight and joy to serve and follow their wonderful, awesome, loving creator. But now Satan is causing the angels to look upon obedience as legalistic requirements. And by the way, he's still doing the same thing in many churches of the world today. Most churches look upon obedience as a bad word, as some kind of legalistic requirement. Why? Because they're listening to the lies of the devil. Because, friends, when we love God, we're going to love to do the things that please the Lord. Amen? And so, what Lucifer really wanted was this, friends. What he really wanted, he wasn't, care, he, he wasn't concerned about the freedom of the other angels. What he wanted was he wanted to be worshipped by the other angels. He wanted to receive the worship that belonged to God alone. And we see that demonstrated clearly when he tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Remember the third temptation? The third temptation, Lucifer, Satan, revealed what he really was after. He showed Jesus the glory of the world. He said, I'll give you all of this if you bow down and worship me. What? This is the height of folly, the, uh, the, the creature, the created being, asking the creator to worship him. That, that temptation was, Lucifer was essentially saying, Jesus, I know why you've come to this world. You've come as a sacrifice to win the world. But you don't have to go to the cross. I'll give you the world back. You can Avoid the cross. You can avoid the shame and the pain and the suffering. All you got to do is bow down and worship me. But Jesus understood 
that the world could only be won by his self-sacrificing love. So he said, it is written, and he overcame the temptation of the enemy. Friends, what Satan ultimately wanted was he wanted to be God. He wanted to be worshipped like God. How would God respond to this rebellion? Satan or Lucifer claimed that his way was better. That if the angels would follow him, they would be more free and they would be a lot happier. How did God respond? Friends, did the Lord see the rebellion that was taking place in the heart of Lucifer? Yes or no? Was God aware of the lies that he was spreading in heaven? Yes or no? Could God have destroyed it right there and then? Yes or no? Yes. And many people say if he, didn't, if he did that, we wouldn't be the, in the mess we're in today. He could have nipped it in the bud. Why did God not stop it at the very beginning? Oh, friends, here's the reason. It's because no one but God really understood the nature of the rebellion. The other angels did not discern the sinister motives of, the, of Satan because the devil deceived them. He was like a wolf in sheep's clothing. He held his selfishness under a pretense of righteousness. And many of the angels didn't understand it. Uh, they thought that Satan really cared about their happiness. They thought that he was just asking questions that needed answers. And if God would have destroyed Satan right there and then, doubts would have risen in the hearts of the other angels. Because listen, not understanding the nature of sin results in not discerning God's justice in the punishment for sin or the result of sin. And the Bible says that the wages of sin is... So not understanding the nature of the offense, they wouldn't have seen any justice in the punishment for the offense. They would have looked upon death as harsh. Why would they see it as harsh? Because for them, Lucifer was just asking questions. He wasn't leading out in an open rebellion. He was just asking questions. And if God would have destroyed him, the other angels would have said to themselves, we better not ever question God like Lucifer did. We better not ever question his authority. Otherwise, he would destroy us like he did Lucifer. And ever from that point on, they would begin to serve God out of fear and no longer out of love. And thus, they would not have been free. And so God saw that. So instead of seeking outward eradication, God sought to eradicate evil from the hearts of his creation. You see, when Satan issued the challenge and the claim, God's credibility was at stake. And if God would have eradicated the opposition, it would have been looked upon as a cover-up. The angels would have said, you know, Lucifer was on to something, and God tried to cover it up. So God chose, chose a wiser course. For the sake of the whole universe, he must allow sin to run its course so that it could be matured so that people could see it for what it really is. Satan must be exposed as a liar and only when it's demonstrated that Satan's way brings disaster could the universe see that God's way was, is best and God was right the whole time. And thus we see Revelation's response to the rebellion. God would allow evil to exist for a time so that he could destroy it for all time. God would allow temporary pain in order to secure a permanent peace for the whole universe. This, my friends, is God's response of love. So what happens? Lucifer is not destroyed. He's kicked out of heaven. 
Revelation 12, 12 says, Therefore rejoice ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knows that he hath but a, a short time. You see, Satan knows that his days are numbered. He knows that his destruction is inevitable. And so because misery loves company, he, Satan is trying his best to, 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 to bring people with him in rebellion and his coming destruction. So he is a roaring lion that walks about seeking whom he may devour. He's cast out of the heaven into the earth. Now, friends, did God create planet earth as a dumping off place for Satan? No. Did Satan have absolute control over this world in the beginning? The answer is no. God made it clear. He gave dominion over the world to Adam, to humanity. Adam was to be the prince of, the, of this planet, not Satan. And God did everything he could to warn his children about the tempter. God did everything he could to demonstrate his love, his care, his compassion to his children. He assured them that he loves them and he has their best interest in mind. And, and God was so generous. He was so giving. We serve a giving God. He said to Adam and Eve, you can eat of all the fruits of the garden except for one. You have it all. I'm giving it to you to be a steward over. I'm giving it to you for your happiness. You can eat of every tree of their garden except for one. God was so, so generous. He said, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat of it. For if you do, you will surely die, not because the fruit was poisonous, but because the wages of sin is death. And the reason why God placed that, that, that tree there in the midst of the garden, it was to preserve the freedom of humanity. He basically told them, I have so much in store for you. If you follow me, you'll be blessed. You'll be happy because I just want and desire your happiness. But I want you to know that I'm not forcing myself on you. If you don't want me, you don't, I'm not forcing you. And that tree in the garden was their way out. That was God preserving freedom and thus making love a possibility. If that makes sense, would you please say amen? But God warned Adam and Eve about the tempter. Satan only had access to man at the forbidden tree. But the record tells us. That, our, that Eve, our first mother, she ventured on forbidden ground and she began to speak to someone she should have never had spoken to in the first place. And I want you to notice that when the serpent spoke to Eve, he did not outright say to Eve, hey Eve, come and be evil with me. No. He employed the same tactics he had used in heaven. He deceived her and made her think that God was holding something back from her for her own good. Notice what the serpent said. Genesis chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. And the serpent said unto the woman, you shall not surely die. What did God say? Some of you look tired this morning. Are you all right? Or are you just in deep contemplation? What did God say to Eve? You shall surely die. You will surely die. Here we find Satan putting a question mark where God placed the period. God made it clear that sin brings death. 
But the serpent says, you're not going to surely die. Well, what's going to happen then? For God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, for who knows? For who knows? God knows. Friends, if you're tired this morning, just shake yourself. And if there's someone next to you nodding off, go ahead and give them a sanctified nudge. For God doth know that in the day that you eat thereof, then your eyes shall be open, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. What is the serpent saying here? He is saying to Eve, Eve, the reason why God said not to eat of this fruit is not because you're going to die. You're not going to die. God is just trying to scare you. The reason why he said not to eat, because he knows that if you do, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to be like God. And God does not want your eyes to be open. That's the implication. He doesn't want you to be like him because he's selfish. He's restrictive. He wants to have all the power to himself. He doesn't want to share it with you. And so there, he knows that if you eat, you will, you will know like him. You'll be like him. You see, Eve, God is withholding something from you. That's for your good. He is a selfish God. He's a restrictive God. He's not looking out for you. He's looking out for himself. And tragically, Eve believed that lie that the serpent spoke about God. And she partook of that fruit. She ate and she joined the enemy in rebellion against God. And then after she ate, you know what she did? She went and she became an evangelist. And she began to evangelize others. Adam ate, and mankind fell from their exalted, holy position. And when they partook of that fruit, listening to the lies of Satan, they basically forfeited planet Earth into the hands of the enemy. And ever since then, Satan has been the god of the world, the prince of this planet. We believed his lie and thus gave dominion into his hand. He said that when we sin. We would live. Our eyes would be open. He made sin look so attractive. He made that fruit look so appealing, so innocent, so nice. Hollywood does the same thing today. They make sin look so appealing, so attractive, so nice, so wonderful, so innocent. But friends, what happened when Adam and Eve sinned? For the very first time in their existence, they felt the terrible results of sin. They felt naked. They felt shame. They felt pain. Sin does not bring happiness. It brings pain, friends. Sin will stimulate you, but it won't satisfy you. Adam and Eve feel shame and nakedness and and embarrassment and guilt and condemnation. They never experienced this before. That's what sin had brought. Sin had separated them from God. They're cut off from the source of life, and now they begin to die because sin brings death. But I'm so grateful that God did not leave his children to die. The Lord took the initiative, and he came from heaven to earth. He came in the garden in the cool of the day, and he began to search for his children. He begins to look for his children. Here we find God searching for man. You know, many people say, I'm searching for God. I'm searching for God. No one is really searching for God. You know why? Because God's not lost. 
We're not really searching for God, friends. It is God that's searching for us because we're lost. But he takes the initiative. He doesn't wait for us to come to him. He takes the initiative and he pursues us. He is like that hound that is on the move and chases us when we're running away from him. And so he comes in the garden and he asks the question, Adam, where are you? Now, did God know where Adam was? Then why is he asking if he already knows the answer to the question? Whenever God asks a question in the Bible, it's not because he doesn't know the answer, but rather because he wants us to think about the answer to that question. Really what God was saying was, Adam, do you know where you are in relation to me? Where are you, Adam? Do you know where you are in relation to me? And I believe that God asks us that same question today. My friends, I don't know who you are, but God is asking, where are you? Where are you in your walk with God? Where are you? Are you in the place that God wants you to be? Are you in the relationship, young people, that God wants you to be? Are you in the school? Are you pursuing the career? Are you doing God's will? Or are you like Adam, trying to hide from the peace giver? Adam had no peace. He was hiding from God. And I believe that God asked that question because he's trying to provoke or appeal to Adam to confess his sin. Adam, where are you? And I believe that, that God wanted Adam to hear his tone of voice. That in that tone when God asked Adam, where are you? It wasn't a mean voice. It wasn't a condemnation, a, a, a condemnatory voice. It was a, a tone where Adam, I believe, could hear the grief and the sorrow of God's heart. Adam, where are you, my son? And when Adam heard that voice, he came from hiding. And you know what he told God? He said, Lord, the woman, instead of taking responsibility for himself, he blamed his wife. But what's the implication? Who gave the woman to Adam? God did. So what Adam was really doing is, the woman that you gave me, God, it's, it's her fault and it's your fault. Instead of taking responsibility for his choice, he blames his wife. This is the origin of domestic conflict. The woman that he loved so much and could not, could not fathom the thought of living without, now he's blaming her. For the sin that he had chosen. Listen, friends, sin not only separates us from God, it separates us from each other. That's why we have war and racism. That's why we have conflict in homes and marriages and in the church. Make no mistake about it, friends. If there is division in your marriage, it's because of sin in one or both parties. That's the enemy, friends. Sin! It separates us from each other. And so he blames the woman. Really, he's blaming God because God gave the woman. Then God comes to Eve. And by the way, you know, sometimes, you know, I fall into that same trap at times. And my wife is quick to remind me, yeah, man has been blaming the wife ever since the beginning of time. <laughs> but now God comes to Eve and Eve follows the 
example of the hu- her husband, and instead of take, uh, taking responsibility, she says, the serpent. The implication is the serpent that you made, God. It's your fault. And ever since then, mankind has been blaming God for sin and the evil that it brings, the suffering and the affliction, the guilt and the condemnation that it brings. But you know what God did? God then provided the first sacrifice. It wasn't man that gave the first sacrifice. It was God, friends, providing that lamb, which was a symbol of himself. And he covered his naked children with coats of skin. My friend, a coat of skin can only come from an animal sacrifice. It's a symbol of Jesus taking our punishment, our pain, so that we could have his promise and his peace. He took our place. That lamb had to give his skin in order for naked man to be covered. And in the same way, Jesus died on the cross completely naked. They stripped him of his physical robe. He died naked. He experienced not only pain, but he experienced shame. And he did it for you. And he did it for me. Somebody say, thank you, Jesus. Adam and Eve blamed God. Humanity has been blaming God ever since then. But who really is responsible, friends, for the pain and the affliction of the world? Who is responsible for the suffering that we experience, for the innocent lives being taken? Who is the one really to blame? It's not God, friends. It is an enemy that has done it. Jesus said that the thief cometh not but for to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But the rest of the verse says, but I am come that they might have life and that they might have it how? More abundantly, friends, the thief came to bring death, but Jesus would come to restore life. How would he come to bring life? He was born in a barn in a manger with the animals. He grew up in poverty, in the ghetto of Nazareth. That's the bad part of town. He was misunderstood by his peers and even by his parents, and he was afflicted all his life by the enemy. Bible says that he's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with our grief. He was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. Even when the devil had the home field advantage, Jesus won the victory, not by using his divine power, but by the power that's available to us, the power of an it is written, the word of God, he overcame the temptations of the enemy. But then, after 33 and a half years of walking on planet earth, Jesus would go to the cross. He would die to restore life in a world of death. Oh, my friend, have you ever felt like this world is just not fair? Have you ever asked the question, God, why is this happening to me? I don't deserve this. God, why me? Have you ever said that the diagnosis comes and and the the, uh, accident takes place and finances are in disarray, your marriage falls apart, your children are crazy. God, why me? I've not done anything to deserve this. Why do the innocent suffer? Have you ever felt all alone and forsaken? Feel like giving up and tapping out and throwing in the towel and just letting it all go? Friends, Jesus was tempted with all those feelings at the cross. Why do the innocent suffer? Why did Jesus suffer? He's the innocent one. He didn't do anything to deserve it. 
And he even, even Jesus asked why. He said, my God, my God, why? Why? Why hast thou forsaken me? And heaven was silent when he asked that question. My friends, don't ever think that God doesn't understand your pain. He understands it more than you. He is born it in his own flesh. It was as if Jesus came into this world and was saying to the human race, the burden you carry is too heavy. So I'm come to carry it for you. Give me that burden, that shame, and that pain. I'll carry it for you. I will pay the price. He felt like giving up. He felt like getting off the cross and going back to heaven. He was tempted sorely, but he held on by faith. Even though he did not receive the answer to the question why, even though heaven was silent and it seemed like the Father had forsaken him, even in that situation, he said, into your hands I commit my spirit. My Father, I don't see you. I don't hear you. I feel like you've forsaken me, and I don't understand why, but I'm still going to trust you in this situation. And even after going through all of that, he made a comeback, for he didn't stay dead. Our God is not dead. He's alive. He lives. We don't serve a dead God. We serve a living Christ, a risen Savior. He went through all of that, and he made a comeback, showing that you can make a comeback too. From homelessness, from alcohol, alcoholism, being addicted to drugs, you can make a comeback. From bankruptcy, from a devastating divorce, from the loss of a loved one, no matter what the situation, because he made a comeback, you can make a comeback too, friends. He's won the victory for us, and now he offers us to receive it by faith. And yes, my friends, we're still living in this battle. Even though the war has been won at Calvary, Jesus secured an eternal victory for all. Even though the war has already been won, we're still in the battle. Why? Because God is giving people more time to choose whom they're going to serve and which side of the battle that we're going to be on. And thus we must endure the pain just a little bit longer. But through the pain, remember the promise of the Lord in Isaiah 41 verse 10. Let's read it together, shall we? God says, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. God promises to us, friends, that he will, will be with us. He says, don't be afraid. Yes, we live in a scary world. We face a mighty enemy, but don't be afraid. Lucifer said, I will. I will. I will. But no, no, friends. God says, no, not I will. God says, I will do for you what you cannot do for yourself. I'm going to give you the strength. And when you lose strength, I'm going to help you. And when you feel like you can't take another step, I will uphold you. I will. Not your will. I will, God says. And so let's trust him. God is too wise to be mistaken. God is too good to be unkind. God is too powerful to be defeated. So when you cannot trace the hand of God in your situation, trust the heart of God over your life. There is no mountain too big that he can't move it. There's no storm so rough that he can't calm it. No problem so hard he can't solve it. No sorrow so deep that he can't soothe it. 
He carried the weight of the world on his shoulders when he carried the cross. And if he was strong enough to carry the cross, he's strong enough to carry you. He is the God that says, peace, be still to the storms we face in life. He has the power to calm the storm, but it doesn't always calm the storm. But he always calms us in the middle of the storm. He gives us peace in the midst of the battle. You see, God can open the Red Sea and provide a plain path for our feet, but he doesn't always do that. But what he can do is give us the faith like Peter to walk on water as a rider of the storm. So whether he opens a plain path before you or he gives you the strength to walk on water, let's continue to trust the Lord. The Bible says in Psalms 119 verse 71, it was good for me to be afflicted that I might learn your decrees. Another reason why affliction comes is so that we can understand the heart of God better. And then it says, we're almost finished. It says here, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, our light affliction is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Or your, your affliction may feel heavy, but it's light compared to what Jesus has, go, has gone through. And it's just for a moment. So hang on to Jesus, friends. Soon he will come. The sky will split open and Jesus will come back the second time. Satan's wings are clipped. And he will be forever destroyed. And when that happens, the Bible says, affliction shall not rise up the second time. It is done. It will be finished. Jesus wins the victory. And because he wins, we can win too. Amen. I want to close with this story about a famous gospel musician by the name of Thomas Dorsey. Thomas Dorsey, in his early days, before he was famous, he was struggling. And one day, Thomas Dorsey found himself sitting in his apartment in the city of Chicago. His wife was nine months pregnant at the time with their first child. The baby was due any day now, and they were looking forward to this gift from heaven. But then... One night, Thomas Dorsey received an invitation inviting him to play in a band in St. Louis. They really needed the money, but the baby was due any day now, and he hesitated whether or not he should leave his wife and go and come back quickly, or he should just stay. And as he thought about it, he finally made a decision that he would ever have to regret. He left, went to St. Louis and played in the band that night. And when the show was finished, as he descended from the stage, someone came and placed a telegram in his hand. And the telegram read, we're happy to inform you that you're now the proud father of a little baby boy. But we're so sorry to inform you that your wife died in child labor. And when Thomas Dorsey read those words, depression and affliction and sorrow hit him like a ton of bricks and as he got on the train heading back to Chicago going to the hospital tears were flowing rivers of water rivers of tears flowing from his eyes he felt so confused he felt all kind of different emotions anger and frustration that he left and guilt that he left and and sorrow and he was asking God God why he felt so guilty for leaving his wife he wasn't there when she needed him the most pain was so intense 
He arrived at the hospital to meet his son, only to learn that that little baby boy died shortly after that too. He lost his family at once. The pain was unbearable. For the next two weeks, he was in a dark place. He couldn't eat. He couldn't sleep. Nothing comforted him. The heavens were dark. And there was confusion surrounding. And he was asking God, why, God, why, why, why? And after two weeks, he sat at his piano. The tears were flowing. Heaven seemed so far away. And as he began to play, a new tune came to his mind. He began to play it on the piano. And then all of a sudden, he felt the presence of God in that room. He felt the comfort of heaven. And words started coming to his mind. Words of hope. Words of comfort. Words of peace. It was like heaven had filled the room, comforting, his, uh, comforting the grieving, this grieving son of God. And as these words came, Thomas Dorsey began to write down these words. And then he wrote the song, Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, let me stand. I'm tired, I'm weak, and I'm worn. Through the storm and through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. When my way grows drear, precious Lord, linger near. When my life is almost gone, hear my cry, hear my call. Hold my hand lest I fall. Take my hand, precious Lord, and lead me home. From that deep, dark depression came this beautiful song. And the message of this song enabled Thomas Dorsey to get through that storm, to make it through that darkness. Oh, the Lord became so precious to him. My friends, I don't know what you're facing today. Maybe you're facing the loss of a loved one. Maybe you're facing cancer financial struggles, whatever it is, friends. The everlasting arms are reaching down from heaven to earth to you at the point of your need. Today, I invite you in Jesus' name to grab the hand of the precious Lord. Invite my brother Taylor to come. He's going to sing this song. And as this song is being sung, if you have a burden that you've been carrying maybe all your life and you want to leave it at the feet of Jesus, if you have, are facing a financial struggle and you need help or a health issue and you need healing, maybe your marriage is being attacked and Satan has robbed the peace, the love and the respect and you want God to restore that relationship or maybe you have a, a child that's lost in the world or lost in the church and you can't imagine heaven without that young person or that family member and you want to bring those burdens to Jesus, you want to lay your request before the Lord as Taylor sings this song, I invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes, think about that burden, and then I want to invite you to come down to this altar up front and lay it down at Jesus' feet as we close in prayer. Listen and come. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on. Help me stand, I am tired, 
sings the next verse come now lay your burden at Jesus feet friend when my way whatever the struggle Jesus knows stop trying to carry it lay it down when my way is almost gone here coming for a personal burden that you're carrying or maybe you want to come in the place of somebody else that you know needs help financial issues health problems relational issues maybe you need victory over some secret sin maybe you've been carrying the burden of, of shame for a mistake made decades ago maybe you were abused you carry the bitterness today you want to lay it down at Jesus feet once and for all if so come let Jesus take it and receive his peace let Jesus remove the shame and the pain that you might have the joy and the assurance God bless you the Lord knows why you've come I would invite those who've come to the front, if you're able to, to go to your knees as we kneel before the righteous and holy God in heaven. If you're not able to kneel, just go ahead and stand and kneel in your heart. For those of you who are in your seats, if you'd like to join these on your knees where you are and give your life, give your heart, give your pain to God, I invite you to do that as we close. Father in heaven, precious Lord, thank you that you are a good God, all wise and all powerful and all loving. Lord, you came from heaven to earth to search for us, to find us, to lift us up, to heal us. And Lord, today we come in a posture of humility and surrender. We come humbly, but at the same time, we come boldly to the throne of grace. Asking for mercy and help in our time of need, because Lord, truly, we're in a time of need. If there was ever a time that we needed you, we sure do need you now. Some of us have been carrying a burden for decades that we're finally laying at your feet today. Take it from us, Lord. I want to pray, especially for those who've come to this altar those who need financial help, Lord, bless them. Lord, we know that you care about our finances. 
And you promised us that when we make you our shepherd, we will never be in want. So bless those who are struggling in that aspect. We also pray for those who are struggling with physical sickness. You are the gentle healer. You're the great physician. You can heal us. I pray for those who are sick, that you'd relieve the pain, that you'd bring healing to them, not only physical, but mental and emotional and spiritual healing. Make us whole, dear God. You can do it. We believe, but we pray that you do it according to your will, your perfect will, according to your perfect time. And Lord, we believe that your grace is sufficient. We also want to pray for the marriages represented here. Lord, Satan hates marriage. He's attacking the home and Lord, there are perhaps families here that look so good in church, but at home it's a different story. There's a mean spirit, there's criticism, there's anger, there's resentment. Lord, whatever the issue is in marriages, we pray that you'd please heal the marriages here. There's someone that's going through a devastating divorce. Lord, if it's not too late, please bring restoration to that relationship. Please, Lord, bless the families, bless the children. Bless our loved ones, Lord. Some of us have family that are lost. And Lord, we can't imagine being in heaven without them. A child, perhaps, a spouse, perhaps, a parent, a friend. Wherever they are, Lord, send angels to minister to them right now. Send your Holy Spirit to convict them, to stir in their heart a desire for something more than what the world can offer. Lord, please shake them up. Wake them up. Help them to know that only Jesus can satisfy. And Lord, we pray that if they have to be stripped from every earthly comfort before they would recognize God, do it, Lord, because we know that heaven is cheap enough. Save us, Lord. There are others who are laying down the burden of the pain of abuse from their childhood. Please heal them. There are others who are addicted to drugs or alcohol or some sin that no one else knows about. I pray that the chains will will be broken, that they would experience the freedom that Jesus promises. And Lord, we have other requests, unique things that we are placing upon at, at your throne. Lord, hear the silent requests of our hearts. And now, Lord, give us peace. Give us joy for the rest of the journey and give us the assurance that you understand and that you are with us and that by God's grace as we hang on to the precious Lord, you will see us through. We thank you for hearing and answering this prayer and we claim it, we receive it in the beautiful, blessed name of Jesus that all of God's children say, amen. Amen. As we go back to our seats, let us sing the song, Precious Lord, together, shall we? The words are on the screen. Let's sing together as we go back to our seats. Precious Lord, take my hand. Lead me on, help me stand. I am tired. I am Lord. 
you blessed? How many of you are thankful for Jesus? If so, say amen. Praise God. I want to thank you, church family, for lingering a little bit longer in church today. I know that perhaps we've gone longer than usual, but it's been good to have been in God's presence today. Amen? Now, just before we dismiss and listen to the music, I want to remind you that this evening, our last presentation is at 645, Living to Die and Dying to Live. Please come for a special blessing. And one more thing, we've just laid our burdens at Jesus' feet. As we leave church, leave those burdens at Jesus' feet. Sometimes we lay it down and then we pick it up again. Just lay it down and leave it there, amen? God has heard our prayers. The answer is coming. It's trapped. Some, for, for some of us, it's already come. For others, it will come in God's time. But I want us to remember this. God doesn't always answer our prayer exactly how we ask it. Because sometimes we think we know it's best for ourselves. But God is a lot smarter than we are. And while he promises, he promises to not always, he doesn't promise to give us everything we want, but he does promise to give us what we need. Sometimes we ask God for candy when what we really need is fruits and vegetables. (laughs) So rest in the reality that the answer is coming and God knows what's best. Amen? Amen? God bless you, family. Aloha, happy Sabbath, Maranatha. Listen to the words. Listen to the music.